Well, good morning to those of you at our Ashley Park campus and those of you who are joining us online. We are so glad you chose to join us here at the end of spring break and as we are continuing in this series called Deconstruction. And really the idea behind this series is that there are a lot of words and terms and really just ideas surrounding Christianity that a lot of us have misunderstandings about or just the wrong ideas altogether about. And we really want to deconstruct those ideas so we can get to really the true meaning behind them. And so last week, uh, Jason gave a message where he deconstructed this word Christian. Uh, It's a pretty big one, right? Uh, And how Jesus never called anyone to be a Christian. Most of us don't know that, but actually the word Christian only appears in the Bible like two or three times. And when it is, it's often just a nickname or many of us believe it's actually a derogatory term for followers of Jesus. What Jesus called his followers to be were his disciples. And a disciple is just a student or an apprentice of someone who devotes their entire life to learning from this person how to do something. And for those of us who follow Jesus, we're learning from Jesus how to do our lives. And this is really what Jesus has been teaching us in this famous Sermon on the Mount, which is the longest recorded sermon we have of Jesus. And we've been really examining this sermon since last September. And today, we are looking at the final verses in this sermon. It feels like a big achievement for, uh, for a lot of us who've been around for the whole thing. And next week, Ed is actually going to be giving a sermon that really kind of caps off this whole journey that we've been in together, and it's going to be amazing. I promise you, you won't want to miss it. And it really leads us into Easter the following week, and I'm going to be praying that you have somebody that you are going to be blessing with an invitation to join you on Easter because we believe it can change their life. Well, in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching on basically every aspect of life. He's been talking about relationships and money and sex and anger and marriage. And really what he's been teaching is he's saying to his followers, his disciples, This is what it means to follow me. This is how I would do life in your shoes. Uh, Jason talked about this narrow path, as Jesus called it, where we're really just following closely in Jesus' footsteps. And that's his invitation. Do what I do in all of these areas. Live every moment of your life learning from me. And at the end of this sermon, Jesus is really kind of concluding with a story that I think is meant to motivate us as to why we should be disciples of Jesus, why we should follow him. So he concludes with this story, and then he gets to this word that all of us hate. And it's actually a word Jason talked a little bit about last week, but I want to deconstruct it a little more this week. And I'll get to the word in a moment, but first I want to tell you the story. So Jesus teaches this entire sermon. It covers a lot of ground. It took us about half a year to get through it. Just a lot of content. And then Jesus says this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, hears everything I've just taught and puts them into practice, actually does them, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation 
on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, does not do them, is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Jesus tells this story about two men who are both building houses. And in case you haven't figured it out, Jesus isn't really talking about houses here. What he's talking about is your life. Jesus is saying, everyone builds a house. Everyone builds a life. And your house is the person you become in this life. And everyone from an early age begins really creating and building their life. You, you go about doing different kinds of things. You learn ways of thinking and you develop attitudes and feelings and you pick up habits and you choose beliefs and opinions and relationships to surround yourself with. And at the core of yourself, these decisions, your decision-making, that's what your life is. But here's the truth about most of our lives. We don't pay a lot of attention to these core foundational things like the big decisions we make. In terms of a house, it's like we don't pay a lot of attention to our foundation or the structure of our lives. And that's the way we think and our attitudes and the ways that we speak and the daily habits we have. Really, it ultimately is just the decisions we make. What most of us pay attention to in terms of our house is the accoutrement. Now, that's a word we all hate because it's French. It sounds like you're vomiting when you say it. Accoutrement. Gross, right? But that's where most of us live our lives. I mean, if most of us are honest in terms of a house, we're focused on the exterior paint and the vinyl siding or the brick, right? We're, we're focused on the furniture we can buy or the appliances we'll put in the house or the granite countertops or how big the cabinets are or how big the closets are. And now you're thinking... Now I can't tell, is he talking about a life or is this like Property Brothers or something? The things most of us worry about, the things most of us think are going to give us a good life, they're not foundational core things. It's all the circumstantial decorative kind of stuff. We think it's what job we're going to have. It's the stuff we can buy. It's the grades our kids make or the college they get into or their future. It's what vacation we took this year. It's how exciting our sex lives are. It's ultimately how packed our schedules are and how busy we appear, how important we appear to other people. These are the things most of us think determine how good my life is going to be. And the way I know that is because those are the things we freak out about. We lose sleep over our job or our debt we worry, we get emotional about our kids' grades and their future and the stuff that we buy. We're willing to alter our schedule for this kind of stuff. We're willing to prioritize these things over all of other things. But most of us don't worry about foundational things, our attitudes, the way we think about things, really the way we make decisions. Not until they have destroyed all the decorative stuff like our jobs and our marriages, and our relationship with our kids. See, when my marriage has fallen apart due to bad decisions on my part, or when my bad habits have affected my work life, or my attitudes and my emotional life has wrecked my relationship with my kids, 
At those moments, I do want to talk about how I feel and how I think and the decisions I make. And I know that because it's in those moments that you show up at one of our church offices and want to talk to a pastor or you go to see a counselor or you show up in front of a judge. And in those moments, it becomes clear. I was building a house and I didn't care enough about the foundation. Because what's the difference between the two builders in the story? Jesus says they're both building houses, but they both choose different foundations for the house. One guy builds his house on a foundation of rock. It's concrete slabs. It's steel reinforced beams as a structure. It's strong. It's smart. Jesus says this man is a wise builder, but... Most of us wouldn't even call him wise. We'd just say he's normal. Because think about it. When you go and you're like, you know, in the house shopping mood and you go over to see a house, the first thing you don't look at is not the foundation. You don't go to check out the foundation because you just assume whoever built the house must have built it on a strong foundation. You look at all the circumstantial, all the decorative stuff in the house. It's not until you have some kind of home inspection when you're getting ready to buy it that something gets revealed as a problem in the foundation. And in those moments, if your spouse is like, yeah, I know there's a giant crack in the foundation, or I know it's built on an Indian burial ground, or right on a, on a sinkhole or something like this, but I really love the granite countertops. I really love the cabinets. You'd be like, honey, I can put in granite counter. I can't, but somebody else can put in granite countertops for a lot cheaper than we can rebuild the entire house from the foundation up. It's just not as simple. And we get that when it comes to a house. And what Jesus is saying is the only kind of person who doesn't care about their foundation and builds their house or builds their life on sand is a foolish person. A person who has no common sense. They only care about having beachfront property, baby. And they don't think about how they're going to support this beautiful mess of a house. And I think it's important for us to focus on Jesus doesn't call this builder evil. He calls them foolish. Because Jesus knows most of us are not setting out to build a bad life. It's not our intention. We just kind of foolishly stumble into it. Every parent knows this. If, if you talk to your child or your teenager after they've just made some really dumb mistake and you're looking at them, what's the question you always ask? What were you thinking? Why did you do that? Why did you shove 16 Flintstones vitamins up your brother's nose? Oh, why did you put your brother in a box and push him down the stairs? Why did you put an aerosol can into that bonfire to see if shrapnel would blow up your neighbor's house? Two of those things I did and one I didn't. I'll let you decide which one's which. But what does your kid say when you ask them that question? Do they say, because I'm evil and I like to see the pain I can cause other people? No, I hope they don't. Let's hope they don't say that, right? Because it's not the truth. The truth is what they say. I don't know. I don't know why I did that. It seemed like fun at the time, right? I didn't really think it through. And none of us set out to build a bad marriage. None of us set out to wreck our finances or to really build our marriage on our relationship with our kids so when they move away, we're 
feeling empty and meaningless. No one sets out to do that. We just kind of stumble into it. It just kind of happens. Not because anyone was trying to be evil, but because we're foolish. We don't think it through. We don't think about what's coming down the road because what's the other similarity between the two houses, right? They both build houses, they choose different foundations, and they both face storms. I think this part is so huge because I think there's a real temptation for religious people and church people to begin to view their relationship with Jesus as some kind of like storm insurance that I can somehow believe enough of the right things and have faith in enough of the right things and pray enough of the right things and eventually I can make sure that no storms, no bad things ever happen in my life. We think of faith as some kind of barrier against storms in our lives. And we even say things like, the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And there is truth to that, as long as we properly define what safe means. Because if what you mean by safe is that nothing bad will ever happen to you if you follow Jesus, or you'll be physically safe, then I really think you should do some research on what happened to all of Jesus' closest followers. There was prison Loss of job and family and property. They were tortured. They were killed. It's not what most of us think as safe. In fact, I think most of us here today, because we're Americans and we live in the kind of world we live in right now, most of us live pretty safe and pretty comfortable lives. And most of our focus is making sure we stay pretty safe and pretty comfortable. We are trying to build lives that make sure we never suffer. We never lose anything. And we are trying to find a way to ensure our lives where we'll never have a financial loss or we'll never have a loss in our health or we'll never lose a loved one. But Jesus is saying to us, look, here's the deal. Storms are a part of life. They are unavoidable. Suffering is a part of life. And if you don't want to accept that, you will build your life focusing on all the wrong things, trying to stay safe and comfortable in comfort. You'll spend all your time beautifully decorating a house that's built on sand. And when the storms come, they're not just going to destroy the furniture. They will crumble your entire life. The point of this story, and really Jesus' entire sermon, this whole Sermon on the Mount is to help you choose a better foundation. It's to help you make a better decision. That's where we get to this word that I think most of us don't like. Let's look back at the beginning of Jesus' story here. This is what he says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice does them. They're like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So what makes us wise? What, what gives us a good life? Jesus says, it's not just that you hear my teachings. It's not just that you have a lot of Bible knowledge. It's that you put them into practice. It's that you do what I say. Jesus is saying, you're not going to get a good life based on what you know. You're not going to educate your way into a good life. You're not going to TED Talk your way. You're not going to self-help book your way into a good, strong foundation. You're not even going to just memorize enough Bible verses to get yourself to a good foundation. This is what matters. Jesus says, I don't care as much about what you know. I want to know, do you take me seriously enough to do what I tell you to do? I'm not interested in what you know, or really even what you believe. It's about what you do. The kind of foundation you need to build a good life is this. 
Obedience. That's the word that most of us hate. Obedience is good for children, or it's good for dogs, right? We send dogs to obedience school. Or parents pride themselves on how well their children obey, right? Or how well they behave, right? People go up and say, your children are so well behaved. They've never said that to me, but I've heard stories of such. Uh, You know, teachers spend the majority of elementary school, grade school, trying to make sure kids can sit still, listen, and behave. And we get why that matters for children, but I'm an adult, right? I'm a rational adult. I can think for myself. Obedience is not prize-worthy. It's what weak-minded people do. It's what weak-minded people, it's like a sheep in the herd, right? I'm not a sheep. But then, of course, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd and his followers, his disciples, are sheep. But for many of us, that just kind of rubs us the wrong way. We prefer to think of Jesus as like a good teacher who he's got some good things I kind of like, or he's like a spiritual guru who's just bringing a new philosophy, a new way of thinking about life. And I can kind of pick and choose the stuff I like and apply it to my life, but I'm still the foundation. I'm still the one choosing. Obey sort of sounds unconditional. It sounds like, hey, don't think for yourself, just do what he says. But still, Jesus says, this is the formula for a wise person for a good life. It's you hear it, and then you do it. You listen, and you obey. Which, once again, sounds good for my three-year-old daughter, right? Like, I need her to listen and obey. When she's walking towards the street, a busy street, when I say stop, I don't need her to go, Dad, authority is derived from the consent of the governed, and I am a strong, independent woman like Beyonce, and I can think for myself, right? I don't need her to do that. I need her to stop and listen and obey. And that's fine when she's three. What Jesus is saying to us is, I just need you to trust me. You know, like I'm a good father, and I only want good things for you. So when I tell you to do something, it's because I know it's what's best for you. Even when it feels like I'm trying to take away your freedom. Even when it feels like I'm trying to keep you from a fun and exciting life. I need you to trust me. One writer of the Bible says that wisdom comes from trusting in the Lord. Not in ourselves. Not in my own understanding. My own rational thinking. I trust in God over myself. And when I do, He makes my path straight, which means... He builds a good life on a good foundation. See, many of the commands of Jesus are just plain and simple, and they make sense before you do them. I mean, if you're here today and you're not even sure you believe in Jesus, there's a lot of these things that you just already agree with. Like, all of us agree that being peaceful is better than being violent, being loving is better than being hateful, being honest is better than being dishonest. It doesn't matter what you believe about God or about Jesus You agree with doing those things. But there are other things that just don't make as much sense until you do them. Blessing those who curse you. Loving your enemy when your enemy is someone who's caused you unimaginable pain and has stolen something from you that no one could ever pay back. Look, I get letting go of bitterness, right? Forgiveness, that's for me. But love, blessing them, that sounds like it's for them and it's not even for me. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, for most of us, choosing to reserve all sexuality for marriage 
Man, that doesn't just sound old-fashioned. It sounds repressive. It sounds like you're holding back a part of who you are. And what if that just doesn't work for you? Jesus' kind of generosity, his kind of marital commitment, his kind of honesty, I mean, his kind of honesty where I may have to tell my boss, hey, I can't lie about that. I can't falsify that report. I can't do that anymore. And it may cost me my job. That just does not seem practical in 21st century America. And so we often just write Jesus off and we say, Jesus, look, I'm cool with most of these teachings and I'll do those things. And I'm certainly cool with this heaven thing because I'm not even sure I could figure that out on my own. But with all this other stuff, I'm the foundation. I make the choices for my life. But Jesus isn't saying, Jesus is saying, hey, look, I'm not asking, does this feel right or does it make sense to you? I'm asking, do you trust me? I'm asking, do you take me seriously enough to do what I've told you to do? Do you really believe I only want good things for you? I grew up in church. In fact, I grew up in this church. And my whole life, I heard all the Bible stories. I knew a lot of Bible verses. I knew all the right things. And I believed all the right things. But I did not do all that God asked me to do, especially in things that I just didn't want to do. I was the kind of person we talked about way back at the beginning of this series in 1945 when we started it, uh, about the person who viewed Christianity as really just a ticket to heaven. That it was like I had to believe the bare minimum, I had to know and do the bare minimum amount of things so I could get into heaven and everything else was for me. Jesus had heaven taken care of, I've got my life on earth taken care of. So I didn't build my life on obedience to him. I built my life on my own desires. I handled my emotions and my thought life and my behavior and my relationships how I wanted to. And I saw it as freedom. I saw it as doing what I wanted. But what happened was I became a person who was ruled by anger I couldn't understand. Ruled by lust and pornography with bitterness that I had from past hurts that I kept thinking I was done with, but they just kept coming back. I, I, I was a person who hurt the people I cared about most with careless words, and most of the time they weren't careless. I was coming right for you. I, I lived on the edge of my finances and my emotions where it did not take a storm. It took a drizzle for it to feel like my entire life was crumbling. And on the outside to everyone else, my life looked good. I mean, all the circumstantial stuff was still looking good, but they were just decorations on the house, and I knew it. My foundation was crumbling, and there were entire times where I wasn't even sure I could believe any of this anymore. And eventually, at a point where I felt like everything in my life, my relationships and my marriage and my emotional health was just crumbling, I came to a point where I had to decide, not just do I believe this, but do I take Jesus seriously enough to do what he asked me to do? It really comes down to, do I trust him enough to obey? Do I trust he knows and wants what's best for me or not? Whether I can see how his way of handling my sexuality and my emotional life and my finances is best, do I just trust him? Because if I do, then I'll just open up my hands and I'll obey I'll listen and I'll, I'll obey in those moments. I'll let go of control. And when I finally decided to do that, everything in my life 
changed. I mean, not only did the circumstances and the decorations of my house get better, I mean, my finances grew stronger, my marriage grew stronger, my relationships with other people got better. But I'm a better person. I'm more kind and loving than I was. I'm more generous and compassionate, more peaceful and patient. I have joy on even the most difficult days. I don't stress about storms like I used to. I don't worry as much as I used to. I don't live in fear that these secrets one day are going to come out and wreck my life because my life is not built on me anymore. My life is built on the loving guidance of a God who died for me. And everything Jesus teaches me is for my good, and not just for me, but for the people around me. Jesus said, all my teachings, all my commands, they come back to one thing, it's love. Love for God and love for people. And so what I've been learning these last seven, eight years of my life is really just to totally give into the love of God to pursue that. And as I follow his commands, I really do love. I mean, I thought I was good at loving before, but really it was just about what I wanted and the people I cared about. But the kind of love I'm learning to live out of now, it comes from a God who is love by definition. It's who he is. And he's teaching me to will the good of other people. And all that means is that I want and I work for what's best for other people. Because Jesus is not interested in helping me decorate my home. He wants to rebuild it from the ground up. Jesus isn't interested in helping me get some good moral teaching over here and some new financial advice over here and some more margin in my emotional life, but I still get to be the foundation. He wants complete control of my life from the ground up. Think about this Sermon on the Mount we've been in for the last year. Jesus isn't teaching you a new way to control your behavior so when you're angry, you don't just externally lose it on everybody. He's trying to change you from the inside out. He wants you to become a person that anger is not your first response. Love and forgiveness just pours out of you generously. Even on people who've wounded you, that you would bless your enemies easily. Jesus isn't interested in you becoming just a little more generous when you can find the space in your life to do it. He wants to radically change how you view every part of your finances so that greed and money no longer is your master. God is, and so you live well and you give extravagantly. He's not just interested in teaching you a new sexual ethic of behavior in your life. He wants to redefine how you think about sexuality altogether, that he would become the source of intimacy and love in your life. Jesus is not interested in modifying your behavior or your morality. He's interested in you, all of you. This is not a new philosophy or a new teaching. It's a new life. It's a new you, a life built on his love. But we won't get there on our own. It only comes when we take him seriously enough to do everything he commands, even if we don't understand it. We have to trust him enough to listen and obey. Because when we do, he makes our lives better and he makes us better at life because he made my life better. And he made me better at life. And he made my marriage better. And he made me better at marriage. And he made my relationships better and he made me better at relationships. And he can do the same for you if you just listen 
and obey. And I get it. I mean, if you don't believe what we believe about Jesus, I get this all sounds like, and this sounds like control. It sounds like blind obedience. And I get that, but I hope you understand. For followers of Jesus, this is not obedience for obedience sake. This is not us not thinking for ourselves. We obey because we trust a person. We trust Jesus. We trust he's right about everything. And I get you may not be at that place in your relationship with Jesus, but my encouragement to you is just start where you are right now. Obey the things you can. And I believe as you do, you'll learn he's right about that and that he's right about your life. And if he's right about your life, then maybe he was right about his life when he said he was the son of God. And that's what we're going to talk about in two weeks on Easter. And I hope you'll be here for that. But as we end today, I just want us to have a moment where we reflect on where we are at in our relationship with Jesus. I've asked the band to come up on stage now to lead us in a song that talks about building our life on the love of God and not ourselves. That we obey Him because there is none like Him, which means He's holy. That's the word the the Bible often uses. It just means He's set apart. He's different than everything else. He's the only one worthy of our obedience and our trust. And as the band sings this song, I want you to just have a conversation with God and say, God, show me in my life where I'm not fully obeying you in everything because none of us are. And we all... I have to ask these questions. We all have to ask these questions for God to show us from time to time where we not obey. And then I want you to take a moment just to commit to him. I'll build my life on you and not myself. And maybe that's the first time you've ever done that. And my hope is that at the end of this song, we will sing with fully obedient hearts. So as the band leads us in this song, I invite you to have a conversation with God. And maybe that's the first time you've ever done that. But then when you feel led to, would you sing with us? Let's do that now.